Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to tonight's edition of Students for a Better Future Radio. I'm your host, Doreen Finkel, with Ruben Torres, and we are live. Once again, hello everybody and welcome to tonight's edition of Students for a Better Future Radio. And um, folks, again, uh, like always, we bring you these specials. Uh, I want to welcome, of course, my host, um, Ruben. Are you there? Can you hear hi. me? Hi. I hear you um, loud say hi, hi, hi to our listeners. Um, we have a double header uh, tonight, Ruben. Yes, we do, and I'm ready, ready to go. <laughs> uh, are you ready to tell it like it is, right? I always do. I always try to do that. Um, folks, um, don't forget our show is sponsored by the 501c3 nonprofit at studentsforabetterfuture.com. Um, and we are in the process of uh, doing some special things on campuses, particularly New Jersey campuses. Um, you know, part of our group is involved in the human trafficking and we have a very small wing at William Patterson University, and they want to bring the news to the public about how big this is, and they need a little extra money. So if you can go to the website, it's studentsforabetterfuture.com, and make a donation, that would be great, because I know Ruben, um, he knows all about the human trafficking, and you know yes. we've done shows on this. And, and that's very, like totally out of hand, you know. Very passionate. Very, we were very passionate about human trafficking and so many different topics. And I think uh, our audience really, really enjoy listening to us every Tuesday from 9 to 10 Eastern Time. Yes. And today is from 9 to 11. And um, we our second show, well, our first show for uh, folks is about the Armenian Genocide, which we're going to come to in a minute. And our second show actually ties into the human trafficking. It deals with Internet pornography. So we ha- have the big double header for us. So are you psyched? Ruben, are you psyched? I can't wait to start. <laughs> I'm itching to get going. You're itching to start. Oh, yes. So, I know. Okay. We do have our guest on the line. And even before I introduce her to everybody, uh, I just want to give you a little bit of background about the Armenian Genocide. And you know what? And, And Ruben, I did my homework on the weekend on this. I, I went to schools like I was studying, <laughs> and um, I found out that the Armenian Genocide, it's also known as the Armenian Holocaust, um, and it was the Ottoman government's systematic uh, extermination of its minority Armenian subjects from their historic homeland, 
within the territories constituting the present-day Republic of Turkey. And the total number of people killed as a result has been estimated between 1 and 1, 1, 1 and 1.5 million. And the starting date of this, I found out, was um, supposed to be April 24th, 1915, and that was the day the Ottoman authorities rounded up and they arrested some 250 Armenian intellectuals and community leaders in Constantinople. But did I do my homework, Ruben? Yes, you did. Am I ready to take, ready to take a test? Uh, <laughs> and, and you know what? I also found out that this genocide was carried out during and after World War One, and it was implemented in two phases. One, the wholesale killing of the able-bodied male population through massacre and subjugation uh, of army conscripts to forced labor, followed by the deportation of women, children, and elderly and infirm on death marches leading to the Syrian desert. See that? So um, I, I could see my guest here. Um, she, she's probably making my like, grimaces over, over where she's calling something. Green, did you do your homework? Did you, did you do your homework? Oh, we're getting some static folks. Let me see if I can find out where it is. Okay. Um, so uh, uh, our guest, by the way, um, has written three books, and we're going to talk tonight particularly about one. I don't know if I'm saying the name of this book right, Virginia, but correct me. It's Musa the Girl, yes. and um, author is Virginia Appel, and welcome to the show, Virginia. How are you? Did I'm you doing great. Did, did I do my homework? I think you did I'm, very well. I'm just going to have to add a little more to it, because a lot of other uh, scholars who have learned that secondhand, they miss one part of it which I'm going to be bringing up tonight, okay? But you did very well. See that? I get an A+. Plus. Oh, um, you certainly so, uh, uh-huh. so, um if you can, Virginia, give us a little bit of background about yourself. Okay. Uh, how much time do I have? <laughs> you are. A minute. You can just start and go ahead. Okay. Uh as if anybody has read my book, Musada Girl, Daughter of Armenian Genocide Survivors, I'm a second-generation Armenian. And I did about 20 years of research on my book. And during that 20 years, I traveled all over the United States to find survivors so I can interview them. And I even went out of the country. I went overseas to the Middle East, Syria, Lebanon, to interview survivors to get a complete composite picture of everything. It was amazing. And um, as you mentioned in a lot of the other books say, after the Turks had the genocide starting April 24 in Constantinople, 1915, that was the initial start of the, you know, major one starting at 1.5 million Armenians were perished, killed. But prior to that, I'll talk a little bit more about it later if I don't have much time now, that the sultan that 
killed Armenians from 1894 to 1896 was about half a million Armenians, and he was a brutal guy. And he didn't want any Christians to be the head of his banks and other businesses. He wanted to get rid of the Armenians. But this is the interesting part. The Armenians were very, very good citizens. They always abided the rules, regulations, but they didn't want us to be the head of this or that and being a Christian nation. That's one thing they could not take away from us. Stayed firm on our religion. And it goes back, way back in our history. By the way, a lot of people don't know too much about Armenia. Armenia is a very ancient, civilized nation. And uh, David Marshall Lang, a historian, a Caucasian um, intellect, English, written many books, and he said, Armenia was the cradle of civilization. We're talking about 4,000 years. So it's not an infant country. We are glad to be in a beautiful country like the United States, and we're going to be celebrating the birthday of this country 239 years in July. <laughs> so this is like an infant next to the Armenian history, but we're glad we're here and we can have the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of press to uh, exercise in this country. Um, now, about me. Now, my mom and dad were in the genocide, actual genocide. My father was going to be captured because he was a young man, but my grandparents, my dad's mom and dad, had only one son, and they didn't want their son to be killed. They sent him to America. But my mother was engaged to my dad. And when the genocide occurred, while all the other towns were being massacred, I'll tell you how our group, seven villages, some, some people say six villages because one of the villages had only two families. They had Samandar, now they call it, but it's Musadar. Musa in Turkish means Moses. Dar in Turkish means mountain. Mountain Moses. Our people lived right outskirts of that mountain. Six villages, starting from Bityas, Hajihabli, Khedelbeg, Vakov, Yorun Oluk, uh, and then Kebusha was near the shore. They were there years and years, hundreds and years, happily uh, bringing their children up, schools, churches. And when the genocide was happening, we had a young minister who had been a minister in a Protestant church in Zaytun near American missionaries when he saw what was happening to his to the people there, they were being massacred left and right because they resisted. He wanted to come to his own village where he was born. That was Yorun Oluk by Musadar. And the church wouldn't allow him, but by the American missionaries' help, he was able to come to Musadar. And when he came, he had to warn all the leaders, all the mayors, saying this is what's happening. When our time comes, don't believe what they're saying because they were sending decrees that, oh, you're going to be deported. Don't worry about anything. Just take as much stuff you can take with you. But as you said initially, Doreen, the young men were all taken in the army, 
and the only ones that were left were the children, women, and elderly. They were to be deported in the Syrian desert. I also went to Syrian desert to see what my folks had gone through, and my husband and I were in a air-conditioned car from one end to the other. We could not even bear the dust, the heat, and I cried all the way from the beginning to the end of the desert. I said, how did my people, how did they make it? Hungry, thirsty, being whipped, bare feet. It, it's, it's horrendous to even think about it. And under that Syrian desert, there are many skeletons, bones of the Armenians that did not make it and or they were fainting because of hunger and thirst, and they were buried alive. These things are all uh, documented by journalists and missionaries, and the archival material is so plentiful all over Europe, at the Vatican, in the United States, in Armenia, Russia, France, uh, Germany, Belgium, Austria, you name it. There are so many materials even Turkish government has it, but they have um, burned some of it. But one of their own Turkish scholars, Tanner Aksam, he was looking into this matter, and he was talking about the Armenian genocide, and they forbade him to talk about that. But he continued to look into the problem, and he said, this really happened. My people really at the genocide, by the way, the word genocide didn't even exist when the genocide was taking place. Guess who coined this word? Raphael Lemkin. Raphael Lemkin is a Jewish attorney, and he was a young man when the genocides were occurring, and he studied this whole thing. He says this was extermination of a nation, of a race. And he called it genocide. Genos in Greek means race. And the second mm -hmm. part, side, in Latin means killing, killing of a race. At the time, European countries didn't even know what to call this. They, even Winston Churchill said, this is such a crime, we don't even know what to call it. It's so, so atrocious, so horrific. Um I can continue if you want wow. to ask me. You yeah, may. But, well, Ruben, do you want to ask something? Oh, definitely, definitely. Why has history, uh, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm discussing, uh, I'm bringing up the the media. Yeah. Um, media That's has not has really done a disfavor to the Armenian people, into the genocide that was committed against the Armenian people. You, why you said you it. Think, yeah. Why that is. Why do Go you ahead. think that has been kept so hidden from mainstream? Some people even call the Armenian Genocide the, um, uh, you know, the quiet genocide or the uh, ignoring it. There were issues. Uh, let me explain some of the issues. First of all, Turkey supposedly to be a democratic republic now, right? And supposedly to be an ally of United States. However, as of 2007 and on to the present day, there are 
slitting throats of Armenians, killing them just like they did before. And Armenians living in Turkey, they have changed their names. They don't want this special treatment that they would be killed right away. They cut their names, Armenian names, all in I-A-N and Y-A-N. Now, the people that I'm going to mention, they have cut their names down not to be so especially be noticed, but they are because they know what churches they still go to. They know they're Christian and all that. Now, Harant Dink. Now, Dink is not an Armenian name, but he had shortened it. He was a major publisher. He had his office, his publish, publications every week, and he had a Turkish and Armenian newspaper called Agos. Agos in Armenian means when a person plows in the ground, opens a space, and plants a seed. That's an Agos. What he was trying to say, he was planting the seed to tell the true story. Well, the Turkish government didn't like that. And he tried so many, so many years to have the Turkish leaders and Armenian leaders to come and to come to some understanding, to cut this terroristic actions that still were going on. And they didn't want to hear him. They didn't want anybody talking about the genocide. So one morning, 2007, he was going to his office, just about to open his office door, a young Turkish man, 25 years old, he came and shot him through his the back of his head, three bullets, and he very brazenly shouted out, somebody who witnessed it, I killed the infidel, and he just ran away. And at his funeral, there were 100,000 people. They were not all Armenians. The Turkish people wept for him to he was a good man, and this is still going on. In 2011, on the same day, April 24th, young man, 25 years old, he being a Turkish citizen, he was in the Turkish army. A Turkish soldier shot him on the very day of the genocide. He often had called his fiancée saying, I'm being hassled day after day. And here they shot him on that very day. What, what did the Turkish government say? Oh, uh, he shot himself. He didn't shoot himself. He was planning to come back to Istanbul and get married. And that, that very same day, very same day, an older lady was going to church. She got the taxi, April 24, 2011. The Turkish driver knew where she was going. He beat her up and threw her out of the taxi. They found her dead, beaten up. That's not all. Later on, another lady, Marissa Kuchuk. Again, that's a cutoff. IAN is cut off from there. He was in his house. He had nice Christian relics everywhere. Somebody broke in the house, an apartment, and stabbed her seven times and slit her throat and as if that was not enough punishment, they opened her chest. Whoever did it, the harsh object 
chiseled a cross on her chest. Her daughter came to visit. The door was half open, got in, found her mother dead in a pool of blood. She fainted. People came. And then when she came to, she, she just screamed and cried. Finally, the word got around, and then the human rights office, there, there's another group there. The woman came and said to the daughter, please, don't say anything. Don't say anything because the plainclothes policemen are all over your mother's apartment. If they hear anything, there may be another genocide right here. So that was a big funeral that took place. Nobody saying anything. Everybody was scared to death. That's a sin. I'm not done yet. There was another young man, 40 years old, Shaheen. He was a teacher at Istanbul Armenian School. He didn't show up at school. His colleagues called and called. Nobody answered. They said, let's go take a look. What happened? They go. His door was ajar. They go in. He was laying in a pool of blood. His throat slit. They called the Turkish police, and the Turkish police came and said, oh, well, it may have been a robbery, and that was dropped, just like that. Those atrocities are still going on. It is a sin to even think about it anymore. But here we have Turkey as an ally. They ought not be mixing their crazy thoughts to stop people talking about the Armenian uh, genocide. Mm-hmm. Ruben, you said, how come this is forgotten? Because it's forgotten genocide. They made a lot of, lot of effort to the American government to threaten right. the American government that if you do say anything or raise a resolution, because our Washington Congress so many times endorsed making a resolution for the genocide, you know, and every time they're about to vote, they get a note from the Turkish government saying that if you do, we're going to do such and such. And I am, in a way, ashamed that our government does that to succumb to that kind right. of threat. Well, I, I, wow. besides the United States government, I, I have not heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, Virginia, but the United Nations, I have not heard any, any discussion about the Armenian genocide. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I was going to touch on that too, yeah. Ruben. Yeah. You know, there are 150 scholars from all over the world, from Israel, from Europe, from America, from Canada, have signed a petition and sent it to the United Nations. I was going to touch on that. I'm so glad you brought it up because that's a very poignant point, that they put that in the genocide commission genocide that this should never happen again and one of them is Air Oran he's a Israeli scholar he wrote a book and denial of banality and about the Armenian genocide and the other gentleman that I mentioned to you Tanner Aksam he was by the way because he he was looking into the genocide issue they put him in jail Turkey and somehow from there, he escaped to Germany. From Germany, he is in the United States of America, and he teaches in two universities at their Holocaust and genocide departments. 
and he's written a book, Shameful Act of the Armenian Genocide, the Turks having done that, his own people. And you know what? They keep a tab on him. Any place he goes, they make trouble for him. He was asked to go to McGill University at a conference of a genocide speech. They knew exactly what airplane he was taking, what airport he was traveling from. They called the airport saying that, oh, this is a terrorist, and they detained him for four hours so he couldn't get to his destination. But nevertheless, he got there. But this is what's happening. Now, United Nations, I'm ashamed of, you know why? Because in the initial stages, United Nations was supposed to be helping all nations all over the world. But you know what, Ruben? In United Nations, mm-hmm. there are so many other nations, and some of them are the very ones that are very much of the culprit of genocide. And they are in security sessions and all that. They, they don't even talk well, about it. Well, if I may interject, uh, Virginia, one of, one of the reasons, uh, based on my research, one of the reasons that... Uh, we we have not heard about the Armenian genocide from the United Nations because the people that are have been put in leadership in the human rights panels mm-hmm. are from Cuba, right. communists, from from Western dictatorships. So yes. how do we expect how do we expect this human rights group that's headed by people who are actually committing genocide? Yeah. That's the reason. It's sad. It's very, very sad. Right. And this is and, why and, and, the story has... Go ahead. Go ahead. Do you want to ask a question, Doreen? Oh, yeah, I was going to say, um, I want to know, um, uh, the Armenian population, uh, the, for the survivors, uh, what were some of the things they had to do to survive from that time period? Okay. At least the ones who managed to survive. Right. That's a good question, Doreen. Now, number one, in Anatolia, in that area that there were so many Armenians, that was Western Asia, at one point, as I told you before, we are talking about 4,000 years history. We had kingdoms, mm-hmm. we had dynasties, we had 26 kings. And our very last kingdom was kingdom of Cilicia on the border of Mediterranean Sea. That was our last kingdom. And that kingdom ended in the 14th century when the Seljuk of Egypt attacked them and our last king, Leo V, was exiled in Paris and he died in uh, 1493. And that was the end of the Armenian kingdom. So, of all that area, our main king was Dikran the Great. He served in the first century before Christ. Now listen to the dates here because this is amazing. A lot of people don't know any of this. And he was such a great king that the, re- the, the area that he covered was from the Caspian Sea to the Black Sea, to the Mediterranean Sea. Imagine, all that space was Armenia. And the Armenians were very prosperous. They wore good clothing. They were good merchants. They were good everything. They, they, they just were so prosperous. And all that that was 
gone through wars that became part of the Ottoman Empire on the 15th century, all those towns were still Armenian inhabitants. Now imagine, just visualize your map, Caspian Sea to the Black Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, and we're going all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, the Levant, which is Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, Iraq, and all that area was all Armenians. Now, having said that, that became all under the subjugation of the Turkish Ottoman Empire. So they were not free to do anything except Armenians never succumbed to the Islamic rule. They kept their religion steadfast. As a matter of fact, 451 A.D., they fought the major major Persian army of 300,000 soldiers with their elephants and sharpshooters and their horsemen with only 66,000 Armenians. And our leader was Vartan Mamigonian. He said to his army, no matter how little we are, we're not going to give up our Christianity. Before they started on the battlefield of Avarair, 451 A.D., they said, you can take our wealth, you can take our everything we have. Sword or fire will never take our religion away from us. We are Christians, and that's how we're going to fight. They fought valiantly that day. Sorry to say that our leader, Vartan Mamigonian, died on that first day with 1,036 soldiers. But the Persians lost a lot more. They lost about 5,000 people. But nevertheless, that was a battle loss. But do you know something? They came back fighting with the Armenians back and forth, back 33 years. And finally, Persians said, go ahead, worship your Christ, your church. We are letting you do that. And then they went around because what they wanted, the Persians wanted Armenians to do to become Zoroastrianism, to worship fire, paganism. And they didn't want to do that. At that point, Armenians won the war by having fought 33 years. And then they went around and they tumbled down all the pagan churches, not churches, you know, they had like monumental places that they would worship, and they built churches everywhere, everywhere. So... Uh, wow. But I am I am very shocked the way United Nations is handling the situation and they're not doing anything. But at, at, later on, if you have other questions, I want to tell you especially about the Musadar battle because that's a very poignant point in the genocide. And we survived, Doreen. All of the Armenians who lived in that area that went up to the mountain, we all survived. And there were other people in France and other areas, they were not... They were not touched by the Turks, just the ones that was under the Turkish Empire. They're, and, they're the and ones. When you, right. When you said you went up to the mountains. Yes. Um, so, 1991. Uh, oh, you, you mean when your, my people went on the mountain? Yes, yes. Yes. I can tell that story um, if you want me to. Yeah, because uh, it's an interesting story of survival. Oh, yes. And you know what? Turkish government hates our group the most. You know why? 
because the resistance took place and we were the winners. We did not succumb to their, you know, all the craziness and we were saved. Let me give you that story step by step because it's a very beautiful story. My mother told it. It is. Yes. And And um, you know something? Uh, Before I um, start the story, a very famous German Jew novelist wrote our story. He wrote 40 Days of Musadar. That's about my people. Do you know MGM bought that in 1933 in Hollywood? They were going to make a movie. As soon as the Turkish government heard about this, oh, my God. They raised Cain. They came to bribe people. They they threatened the American uh, government, saying that if you allow this to happen, we're going to close all our air bases. You, you cannot come across, la, la, la. And whatever they did, they stopped making this movie on the Hollywood terms. But 1982, a very, a very rich Armenian, John Kirkjian, he was a multimillionaire. He says, I'm going to make this movie with my own money. And on my website, people can watch this 40 Days of Musadar, how this novelist explained everything, how my people went up that mountain, how they survived it for 53 days, how they were saved, rescued by the French ship, and then they called for more ships. Four more ships came, and a British ship, and they brought them to Port Said, Egypt, and they were there for four years when the war was taking place. Number one, you know, no, uh, World War One began uh, September of 1914 after the Archduke of Austria and his wife were killed, so the war had started. Now, that's the time when the young Turks, the three major leaders of them, Talat Pasha, Enver Pasha, Jemal Pasha, they said, this mm-hmm. is a perfect time to attack the Armenians and we can commit genocide, not the same style as Sultan Hamid did. Sultan Hamid was very brutal. He, I'll come mm-hmm. to that later, you need to know, it was very brutal. But they pretended, these three Turk leaders, they pretended that they're westernized and they're going to be westernizing their country. And they took over, they, they made speed. The second, be demise, he, he, he was gone. And then they took over. They called their new government CUP, Committee of Union and Progress. And many Armenians thought, this sounds great, Committee of Union and Progress. And since they said they were going to westernize Turkey, they thought, oh, this is, this is great. Even Armenian soldiers went volunteering anyone 20 to 40 years old, they volunteered in the Turkish army. But soon enough, they discovered that none of their men were coming back. And then this genocide had begun, April 24. And they knew that their young men would never get back. And then the decrease of each town, okay, on such and such a date, Prepare, we're going to deport you. Why? Where are we going? Those who resisted, they got killed right away with bayonets and burning them. And those who resisted, they didn't survive except the Musadah group. And now, 
when that minister came back to Yogun Oluk, that's a village. By the way, my mom and dad both were born there, and I was born there years later after the war was over when mom and dad got married in Manhattan. They went to Philadelphia to get a nice family. They went back and forth to see their family in Turkey. And the last time they went back, I was born. I was born in the same very town, the same very house my father had built. And I wanted to go to see that 1991. And I went all the way to the top of the mountain. And my husband's relatives in Kesab, Syria, they warned me. They said, please don't go. The Turks will kill you. I said, I have an American passport. And I gave a copy of our passport to his cousin. I said, if we do not return by dark, call the American embassy in Ankara. And that was it. So we, we left 5 a.m. in the morning to go to the top of that mountain. I wanted to see where my people fought. So let's go back a little bit. When the minister came, all the leaders got together. They wanted they wanted some information. And he said, his name was, by the way, Reverend Dikran Antriyasyan. He said, they're killing everybody. If our decree comes, don't believe them. Let's do something so that we can save our people. And everybody thought about this, the leaders, the priests, the ministers, the mayors. They said, one way we can either survive or die honorably, to go up on the mountain Moses because they knew that mountain from back to the front, because they, they, they were right there. They lived right there in those villages. And when tree was given to them, they all went at dark. They brought their food, their pots and pans, their mattresses, their cattle, their green, their everything on the mountain. Mm-hmm. Wow. I know, I'm just enjoying listening to this. Um, you know, Ruben, do you have a question? Have any any questions you have? Please interrupt. I I I I, I would be happy to. I, I, I'm learning so much about the, the the history of the Armenian people. How how they fought, how they survived, the struggle. I mean, if people yeah. can learn from the lessons that the Armenian people went through. This world would be a better world. Do you know, Ruben? We don't have many Armenians all over yeah. the world, but but you know what we have? They're very hardworking, intelligent people, and no matter what country they go to, they assimilate very quickly because they all speak more than three languages. And even in Armenia, it was considered that Armenia is. 99% literate. This is how we believe. We're hard workers. Even the people in Musada, when they went up there, now, every once in a while, there's another issue that I want to bring up because it's a, it's a very sore issue in today's world. You know, Hitler did such awful, horrendous things. But do you know what he said on August 22, 1939, when he was sending his uh, military men to attack a Poland, to kill. He said, go kill children, women, everybody, with no exceptions. After all, who remembers the Armenians? Now, we can learn mm-hmm. a lesson. 
In other words, if the nations turn around the other way, they don't punish the culprit of these genocidal workers, the nations, then it will happen again and again, just like it's happening right now, which is sad. That's what I was just about to bring up. Yep. Because there's a war on, on, Christian, uh, on, on Christians around yes. the world. Yes, and, right now. And, and, as right, right now. Um, yeah. And, and the press and, and the world is totally ignoring and, yep. of history, and history will repeat itself if you let it. It does, over and over. I agree. I agree. Anyway, when my people went up on top of the mountain, and they... Uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention that Hitler took all the people's guns and ammunition, and then he he kept his people uh, spineless and helpless, and that's that was his intent because he wanted to create a master race, right? The master race. Yes. And that uh, the radical Islamic terrorists, which is part of Turkey and all the others who are doing it. Their intent is to form a master religion. And thank God in our country, our Constitution, Amendment 1, tells us that we can worship whomever we want to, which is including even Muslims. They're building mosques in this country. That shows that we have the freedom of all religions here. So, that being said... Why would some mosques develop radicals in their mosques to do the same thing and they send them to Syria to commit all these genocidal acts? That's besides understanding. I cannot understand that. I cannot. But to go back to the strategy that Musadar people had, they were always searched too. They didn't have guns. Now, you may say, how did they fight the Turks on top of the mountain? Because when I was doing this uh, lecture on another, um, at another uh, university, they asked me that, which is a very good question. You know what? Our people were very smart because they knew, they knew that they were always being followed and they were always being persecuted. What they would do, they would have a funeral in the casket, they would put all their guns and go buried at the cemetery. But they didn't have it in their homes. When the Turkish soldiers came, they, they found nothing. So that was okay. But then when the time came, they had to go on top of Musadah. They went and got their ammunition, which wasn't that many, by the way. It wasn't that many. But they went on top of the Musadah, and they said, if we die will die honorably fighting. If not, perhaps, by God's will, maybe some warships will see us from the Mediterranean Sea because they were on the border there. Maybe we'll be saved. So, wow. they went up there, and when the Turks came July 21st to look for them, most houses were empty, except some 30 families or so they were afraid that if they don't do what the Turks said to deport, to be deported, they'll be punished severely, so they wanted to stay. So when they came, the Turks came, all main of the houses were all empty, forced the others to say, where are they? 
They said, well, they're on top of the mountain. Okay, then the war started. They surrounded Musadah, started shooting. August was a very terrible month for them. We had such a good group that they were sharpshooters, and they were told, when you aim to shoot, we don't have much ammunition. You better not waste that bullet. And that's exactly what happened. We only lost 18 of our men, aged 17 to 61, and the Turks lost hundreds and hundreds of people. And they saw that they were resisting, you know, against them. They brought another 3,000 army. And our people were only about 5,000 to begin with. So they had surrounded the mountains. They started infiltrating in different sections. Things were getting pretty tough when on the 50, 52nd day, they were having their last mass and they were chanting their hymns. We call it in Armenian, Sharagans, that means God have mercy on us, have mercy. And people at this point were getting a little bit tired and helpless and food was diminishing. They hardly had any food left and they didn't know what the outcome would be. Children were crying, hungry, holding onto their mom's skirts and crying. And all of a sudden, after the chanting took place, it was quiet, people crying. And all of a sudden, shouting and exclamation, thank you, God. And people started running to the edge of the mountain. They had seen a warship stop. And how did they stop? They had put a big sheet white sheet, and they had made a red cross on it. The young ladies had embroidered red cross, and they had written on it where Christians were being persecuted by Turks. We're on this mountain. We have no place to go. Please save us. And uh, that was a French warship. The captain stops, and the two gentlemen go in. One spoke fluent, one spoke fluent French. They get them on the ship, and they say, what's going on? And they, the guys explain that this Kebisev village has become a depot for the Turks. They took one of the churches in Kebisev village, and they said, it is? And the warship, the French warship, bombed that whole thing, and everything went in flames, whatever Turks had. And then they sent for their leaders to send more ships, they sent another three ships plus that one, and then a British ship. They put all the Armenians in it. I have authentic pictures of this from the person who had taken them in my book, Musadal Girl, and started their journey September 12th, and they got to Port Said September 15th, and all the tents were ready for them at the refugee camps over there by the British and by the French. Any questions so far? Well, how, how, does, how do you see the current situation of the Armenian people in their relationship with the current Tur Turkish government today? Not very good, because as I told you before, the gentleman who was the publisher 
2007, they killed him. They still right. watched with a fine tooth comb. They don't allow Armenians to have big businesses. They do not allow them to speak freely. That right. all is all constricted. And but since since the Armenian genocide, many Armenians who can afford to leave Turkey, they leave Turkey. They're established in Europe, in Brazil, in uh, America, in Canada. All right. together now we have about... 10 million Armenians in the whole world. And they're all very successful people, I'm very, very happy to say. And the ones that are there, they're still given a lot of trouble. And to this date, even their president, his name is Taip Erdogan. Erdogan, yeah. Erdogan. He talks from both sides of his mouth when the people were doing the reminiscing of their dead people. They were talking about the Armenian genocide, the people that had died. He came very shortly. He says, I uh, give my condolences to you, and he left. And a few days later, he has a very established big rally in Turkey, in Istanbul, with big professional placards saying, the Armenian genocide never happened. And also some other obscene things too. It, he he also had signs saying Armenians are bastards. Well, you know what I said? The Armenians, if they were bastards, because they took our young women harems and they married many of them. If that's what they mean, you know, so be it. But he is not good. He is so. He belongs to the AK party. The AK party in Turkey is a mobilize people to very strict Islamic group in yeah. that field. So I didn't expect too much from him. But but uh, my, my question was more directed uh, I, government to government. Armenian government, Turkish government, do they have, do they have a, a, a working relationship? What type of relationship do they have? Oh, well... Before the genocide, Armenians were in very key places in the in the government and all this, but not now, not now. They don't give them any such positions at all. No, no, but I'm saying is there communication um, between the Armenian government and the Turkish government? Oh, Armenia now is independent. You know, after the war, uh, this is a good thing that you're mentioning, so I can touch base there. After yeah. the yeah. Armenian genocide, <laughs> there was a section of Armenians near Russia, they even wanted, Turkey wanted even to go and fight more to uh, to get those Armenians out of the way. They had a, uh, a big war uh, in 1918, and the Armenians won, would you believe it? And Armenians won, and Armenia had a republic from 1918 to 1920, May 28th to be the exact date. At the Battle of Sardarabad, Sardarabad is the big field where the war took place. And our independence was very short-lived, two years. But after that, Turkey and Russia again fought over Armenians, whatever was left of them near Russia. So guess what happened? Russia won. And now Armenia is an independent country, but... 
For 70 years, they were under USSR rule. They were a republic of USSR. Right. Wow. Right. Um, I just want to ask one question, um, Ruben. I know you touched on the media before. Yeah. Um, but has that been all around the world to, uh, or just in the United States where they sort of downplay the Armenian gen- genocide? That's a very good question, Doreen. In, in, in Europe, everybody knows about Armenian history. As a matter of fact, to answer that question, in Switzerland, in Slovakia, in Greece, in France, if anybody talks against the Armenian genocide, they're incarcerated because they have such archival material that they don't want those people to spread lies. Would you believe that? Those countries do not even allow people to deny it. In this country, oh, <laughs> I, I hate to say this wow, because I'm going to have an exhibit. After I talk at Kane University on April 23rd, I'm going to have an exhibit to show that it's shameful to say that former congressmen of the United States of America are puppets of Turkish government. Let me repeat, they are lobbyists for them. They pour millions of dollars to them, and they are lobbying so far, they have succeeded not to get a resolution passed for the Armenian genocide. And we say, why? Nobody has heard about it. This is what happens. They have worked against that issue continuously, continuously. I even can give wow. you an example. Oh, go ahead. I have so much. Uh, no, so much go, to- go ahead. Go ahead. You were saying we only have, we have a couple minutes left, so go ahead. So some of the... I'm sure you're going to recognize some of these names. First of all, besides that, they pour millions of dollars are main universities, one being Princeton University, Harvard, Chicago, Georgetown, UCLA. Any of these universities, they have Turkish study groups. And one professor who became the head of the Princeton University in 1980s. He was spreading shoddy remarks about the Armenian genocide, that it didn't happen. And they found out that this, his name was Heath Lowry. We have organizations, watch groups in America, Armenian, they know the whole history. They found out this guy was a Turkish a government worker, and he became he became the head of the Princeton University Turkish Study Group. He's not any longer there because he was selling lies. Now, wow! It, I mean, there is so much that they're pull, pushing their money across this way or that way to stop this story that it's the truth. But you know what, people can go look into books, people have written books and archival materials, even the Vatican, even the Vatican, even Pope Paul, Pope John Paul, he went to Armenia, talked about this before yeah. his death. Um, he talked about yeah, the genocide. Uh, go ahead. We're almost out of time. Go ahead. You finish your statement. Yeah, and it's, it's very, very sad that uh, some people will not heed to look in the story because if they hide it, they think, and uh, that would go away. It won't go away. 
it will go away. Um, when we okay. learn now that since April 24, 1.5 million Armenians were killed, but before that, Sultan Hamid killed half a million Armenians right. just like that. That's right, two million right. Armenians um, right there. Yes. Okay, Virginia, can you tell everybody where they can get your book? My book is on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, ZulanPress.com, which is my publisher. If they put my name and put the name of the book, they can get it anytime. By the way, uh, Amazon.com always has uh, yes. sales on the books. I don't know. They must have a deal uh, okay. with the publisher. Because uh, we, we're out of time, um, and uh, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Uh, we have to definitely do another segment on this. This is so interesting. Um, Thank you so much, also, Doreen and Ruben. It was nice to yeah, know you yeah. people because you're activists about other good topics too, which is very good. I think we ought to have many more activists for good causes. Virginia, it was an honor to to listen to you, and uh, and I would like to see if I can find out about the University of Texas if, if they can if they're interested. If, I'll be happy to donate them a yes. book. I'll be happy yes. even to talk to them. <laughs> yeah, let um, me see what I can what, what, what I can find out yeah. and, and see because I think we need to spread. Do you want to uh, me give you my yes. website? Uh, guys, okay, guys, we've got to wrap it up. Okay, um, uh, to our listeners. Okay, I'd like to thank you for listening to the show, um, and uh, to Virginia and our guests and our. Uh, callers, I'd like to also thank you, um, especially for Virginia, for calling in and sharing this with us. And yes, um, yes. and uh, t- stay tuned for our next show, um, which is called "The Accessibility, Availability, and Anonymity of Sex on the Net." Call in six four six seven one six eight five two eight in approximately three minutes. Six four six seven one six eight five Two eight, and uh, we'll hear from everybody then. Thank you, and good night.